0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Who will be the next governor? In about two months, Coloradans will narrow the field in primaries that, for the first time, are open to any registered voter. Between now and then, we're meeting the candidates to talk about education, transportation, and health care, among other issues. Today, Democrat Mike Johnston, who introduced himself recently to voters gathered at a home in Denver.
1: I grew up on the western slope of Colorado. I'm the only candidate who's not from the Denver-Boulder front range area, but my my mom was a music teacher, and my dad was a bartender, and they moved to Eagle County in the 60s, and my dad was running a bar there, and my mom bumped into the guy with the handlebar mustache and the purple chopper and the fishnet shirt and said, (laughs) that is the father of my children. (laughs)
0: Johnston served in the Colorado Senate from 2009 to 2017. Prior to entering politics, he says his life was moving on a very familiar path.
1: I eventually followed my mom into the real family business in our family, which is public school teaching. Uh, I'm proud that I'm a fourth-generation public school teacher. Uh, I started my career teaching high school English, which was the one rule uh, in our house, because my grandmother was an English teacher and my grandfather was a school principal. uh, And then my grandfather ran away with the math teacher. And so my grandmother and used to say, "Baby, you can be anything you want to be, just not a math teacher."
0: Johnston went on to make education reform a big part of his legislative career. There were highs and lows for him. He was the architect of Colorado's teacher evaluation system. He also fought for a statewide tax increase for schools in 2013 which voters defeated resoundingly. Mike Johnston, welcome to the program. Thank you so
1: much for having me. Delighted to be here. What's the single biggest problem facing Colorado, and how do you propose to solve it? I think the single biggest problem facing the state is how are we going to make the necessary investments in our people in this state, which is around... K-12 education and higher education and in our infrastructure, which is around roads and bridges. If you want to be able to grow this state in a way that protects what we love most about it, those are the two most important things: people and infrastructure. And I think to do that, you're going to have to have a governor who's going to lead in going to the ballot and repealing the worst parts of Tabor so we can actually restore funding to a system that right now we have one of the fastest growing economies in the country and one of the worst funded K-12 and higher ed systems and roads and bridges infrastructure in the country.
0: Okay, so the theme there is investment, and that obviously points to the need for the state, in your mind, to have more money. So you talk about repealing the worst parts of TABOR. TABOR is the Taxpayer Bill of Rights in the Colorado Constitution, and it says state and local governments cannot raise taxes or spend beyond a revenue cap without voter approval. Uh, At that House party we visited, you demonstrated how you would change TABOR uh, using a wine glass or or a beer <laughs> mug, help us understand how that illustrates what you call the worst parts of tabor
1: it 's like the worst and best of Colorado at the same time, Tabor and the beer mug uh, but yeah, I find it 's a simple example, which is the the most damaging part of Tabor, I think is the fact that it puts an absolute cap on the state budget, no matter what the state economy does. So the example I use is if you look at a at a beer mug and say, if this full beer would have been the entire set of state needs, you know, for K-12 education, for roads and bridges, for higher education. What Tabor does essentially is come and cuts a hole halfway up that glass, which means it doesn't matter how long you put that under the tap, that glass is never going to get full. You'll never fill the set of state needs because the beer will always pour out when you get to that hole in the glass. And so my proposal has been, you don't have to raise taxes. You simply... Tape up the hole in the glass, which is what people that follow this would call de-brucing the state or allowing the state to keep the revenue that's coming in under the current economic recovery. This would require a vote of the people statewide. It would. You'd have to go to the voters. I propose you do it in 2020, which will be a historically high turnout election, I think, for this state. Presidential election. Presidential election.
0: All right. There are those who would argue that more money in the hands of citizens,
1: not governments, is how you create economic development. What would you say? I'd say the CU School of Business did a projection of what Colorado's future will look like economically, and their projection is that the economy will start contracting as early as 2019, not because we don't have great businesses here, but because we're going to be missing two things. One is the people with the skills they need for the jobs that are emerging. And the second is infrastructure that you can move goods and services around. Around the state on, And so I think if you don't fundamentally have infrastructure and talent, that's going to be the biggest gating factor to economic growth here.
0: But if Tabor were to exact a negative effect on the state, uh, wouldn't we have seen more draconian effects by now? That is, this is a state with low unemployment. I think uh, advocates of Tabor would say, uh, whose economy is doing well and where business is thriving.
1: So I think there are ways that we've kicked the can down the road as far as we can right now. What we also see is we have twenty billion with a B billion dollars of backlog needs for roads and bridges that are crumbling over the next twenty years. We have, you know, three hundred percent increases in tuition at higher ed institutions over the last ten to twenty years, so college is becoming less and less affordable. We have, you know, billion dollar holes in K twelve funding each year. So yes, as we see now, our teachers and our higher ed institutions are trying to do more and more with less and less, as are our roads and bridges, but you're reaching the break. Point on those things. And I think now's moment where we've outrun the capacity to still grow under Tabor. Okay.
0: We will unpack transportation, education, all in this conversation. And why don't we start with education? Because you would funnel more money to schools. Education, a marquee issue for you. And yet, one of your opponents in the Democratic primary, Carrie Kennedy, was endorsed by the state's largest teachers union, which said of her, she aligns with all of the issues and values that our members share. I think this illustrates what appears to be a split in the Democratic Party, one that was very evident at the State Assembly earlier this month. An education reform group that you're a part of was told to take Democrat out of its name. What does it say that there's such a disconnect between you and many of those in the family business, as you put it, and that is teaching?
1: Well, I'm very proud of the fact that we have a deep well of support from teachers across the state, including the teachers I worked side by side with as a principal here and the union presidents I worked with who are big supporters of mine. And yet not the statewide union. And I think what you focus on, what we focus on now is the most significant challenge facing the state going forward is the same, which is how do you actually fund schools, whether they're district schools or charter schools that are both public. What I think you've seen in this debate is when resources get scarce, folks start fighting over the crumbs off the side of the table, as opposed to solving how you fix the biggest problem there, which is funding resources. Uh, So, of course, you know, I believe there are things that um, I'll take a stand on and I'm willing to disagree with folks in my own party and disagree with folks on the other side of the aisle. That's why. And
0: education, where is
1: that? Is that particularly in the investment in charter schools and innovation schools, do you think? Uh, no, I think that what I think that there obviously we want to have choice for parents. I think parents have made clear they like to be able to choose different sides of school, different types of schools that are public. Uh, I oppose privatization. I oppose vouchers. I was the first to oppose Betsy DeVos's nomination as secretary. So I think there's a real wrong road to go down there. But I do think there are parents in Colorado who want public school choice as long as you hold charters to the same set of standards. I've also been the one to fight to say that charters ought to make sure they serve all kids and ought to keep their doors open to all kids. I ran a special ed facility. I've ran a district center program for students with special needs. So I think that all public schools should keep their doors open to all students, but schools that do that uh, should get funding and should get support.
0: On Thursday and Friday, teachers across the state plan to walk out to protest low pay and what they say is often out-of-pocket expenses for work. They're buying supplies for their classrooms. Uh, Are they right To walk out? Would you walk out with them if you were still an educator?
1: They are right. And not only would I walk out with them as an educator, I will be there with them as a candidate. So I'll be joining this week because I think what you find is, yes, when you ask what the impacts of Tabor are, one of the impacts of Tabor are we now have some of the lowest teacher salaries in the country here in Colorado. You go to a place like Montezuma County where I was recently, you know, starting salary there for a teacher is $29,000 a year. That's barely above minimum wage. And so you have folks who will say, I was going to teach, but I decided to just wait tables instead because I can make more money. There, You can't find the best talent we need for the most important jobs in the state at that kind of compensation. So I do think that the long term weight of Tabor and others are starting to bear down in our schools and they've been doing more with less for too long.
0: You blame Tabor for a lack of education funding. And yet Tabor says, listen, if you want to raise taxes, go to the voters and ask them. You
1: did that in 2013 you failed. Isn't that your failure, not Tabor's? Uh, no, I think that we did exactly what Tabor asked us to do, which is to say, if you want more resources, go to the voters and ask for it. We, uh, we followed it and, took, and made that request. The voters did not want to do a tax increase at that stage. Uh, that was the hole in the school funding, which was about a billion dollars. So that's what we asked for. They said no. So what I did is listen to their feedback and came back to the legislature the next year and found a way to pass, with bipartisan support, one of the largest increases in school funding uh, we've seen in the last 30 years. And so uh, I think we can always find a way to work within the constraints. But if folks want to know what would it take for us to have, say, teacher compensation that's on par with at least the average states in the country, rather than being at the bottom, you would need to have the ability to make more investments.
0: And you think that's through fixing, as you call the worst parts of Tabor? You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we've begun our conversations with the people who want to be your next governor. Uh, we're starting with Democrat Mike Johnston we have talked uh, briefly about workforce training. Mm -hmm. And one of the programs you're touting is called the Colorado Promise. In essence, it's a kind of educational national guard. Um, Coloradans of all ages, not just young people, would be able to go to school for two years and learn new skills debt-free. And in return, they'd volunteer for Colorado in some respect, giving back. Uh, Who do you think is in
1: need of that kind of program? Uh, I think if you look at coal miners on the Western Slope, or you look at truck drivers, or you look at bank tellers, all of these industries that stand to be automated or changed or eliminated even potentially, we know we're going to have many, many Coloradans who are going to be in transition. Uh, And we know that the new jobs they're going to want to seek are going to require new skills. So I think we need a new vision for public education, which is not the old one where at age 18, you get a degree and that's an inoculation shot that keeps you employed for 50 years. That's not the new world. The new world is you got to change jobs eight to 10 times over your career. And those need new skills. So we want a way for everyone to be able to get access to those skills at any stage of their career when they're making those changes. You would
0: use online sales tax to pay for the bulk of that, uh, a tax that the state is not yet currently fully collecting. Okay, transportation. According to CDOT, there's a $9 billion shortfall for transportation needs. Republican lawmakers say the money is already there. The state just has to make it a priority. But uh, if some sort of measure were to get on the ballot perhaps alongside your name... Uh, asking for a tax hike for transportation. Would you support it?
1: I am likely to support it. There are a number of measures being considered right now, so i don't want to see what the final one is. But, you know, and these are all led by the business community and the chambers of commerce who are just saying, for our own economic needs, we have to be able to make this change. I chaired the Finance Committee for four years in the Senate, so I can tell you there are not $9 billion in the couch cushions of the state budget to fund roads and bridges long term, and that's just the first nine years of needs, another $11 billion for the next 11 years after that.
0: Every Democratic candidate in this race is talking about how to make sure that all Coloradans have health insurance. Uh, but th- these candidates, including yourself, differ on how to get there. Uh, so Representative Jared Polis among the Democrats wants a single-payer system. Former State Treasurer Kerry Kennedy talks about a public option for anyone through Medicaid, or, as both she and Donna Lynn suggest, through the plans offered to state employees. Your proposal is more tailored than that. People uh, who have to spend more than 10 percent of their income on a plan could buy into a Medicaid public option. Why that more targeted approach? Because
1: what we want to do is we want to provide choice in all the parts of the state where people don't have choice, which is what's driving up prices. What you don't want to do is destabilize the markets that are working effectively. And so what we've offered as a public option to buy into Medicaid in any places where the plans are currently unaffordable, which is do like Do you think the a statewide slope. plan would be destabilizing? I, I do think it would be. Okay. What you would see is a lot of private healthcare providers would probably leave the state. We'd have less choice. We'd have higher prices.
0: You back a number of initiatives when it comes to energy, espousing what you call a clean energy economy, that it would achieve a 100 percent renewable energy in the state by 2040. But on your campaign website, you barely touch on oil and gas, which is a huge part of the economy here. Uh, also, a source of a lot of tension in Colorado. As governor, is there anything you'd change about how oil and gas
1: is regulated by state or local governments? I think there's quite a bit of work to do. And actually, we just released a new part of our plan this week, so you may just see it. Uh, But yes, we've come out and said a couple things. One is long-term. We obviously have to move the state to 100% renewable energy, so that's our big goal. But in the short term, we have to do far more to protect public health and safety. So I've said, yes, I think you have to push back setbacks uh, statewide. I think you should not allow folks to drill in places that are environmentally sensitive, like the Thompson Divide or the Sand Dunes. So further
0: setbacks.
1: Yes, I think They've already been moved. Yep. I think those need to be pushed back. They need to be pushed back statewide as one. I think you don't want where neighborhood by neighborhood, county by county are separately negotiating against oil and gas companies to see who gets the lowest setback. I think there ought to be one statewide setback. And what uh, do you say to the people
0: whose property is, is underground and taken by that? who don't have access, perhaps, to their minerals as a result.
1: I don't believe that you can ban people's access to those minerals. I still believe they have access to recover them. But right now we know, and I've visited with these companies, right now, you know, they're they're running two-mile horizontal drills underground to be able to get to minerals. So a 500- or 1,000-foot setback is not going to make it impossible to get to those minerals. It just means you have to keep away from schools and homes. Did you want
0: to get to perhaps one other proposal for oil and gas?
1: Yeah, I think the other one is we all clearly have to uh, cap the more than 1,000 orphan wells around the state, which are the kind of leaking wells that caused the home explosion in Firestone, where I spent some time with families. So that ought to be the responsibility to get those all capped and plugged. And then we ought to make sure we get to zero leakage along all those pipelines so we don't have more and more families worried that if they go into the basement to fix a pilot light, they might have their home explode. Briefly, to guns, you would
0: ban bump stocks, create gun violence restraining orders. Uh, But at least one candidate in this race has called for a ban on assault-style weapons, like the AR-15. You have not. Why not?
1: Uh, I have actually. I was the first one to come out and call for a ban on it. We had the dis- discussion and the debate, and I've said, yes, of course, I would ban assault weapons but i think the more important thing to watch is the size of the magazine because if you look at just two high profile shootings in colorado of course the aurora theater shooting hundred round magazine on an ar15 but if you just ban the ar15 by itself you still have the columbine shooting where you had a shooter who walked in to a high school with a handgun with a 52 round magazine in it and if you have handguns that still carry 52 round magazines that is the real thing to watch so i was proud to sponsor the ban on high capacity magazines every republican candidate said they would repeal it it's Most important to protect, that ban on high-capacity magazines saves the most lives. But also, yes, I would sign an assault weapons ban if we could get that done. All right.
0: I want to go back to something you said at that house gathering in Denver. Uh, You were discussing how your campaign is financed.
1: You know, we have also raised more money than any gubernatorial campaign in Colorado history at this stage, Republican or Democrat. And the only campaign that's done it without a single dollar of PAC money, without a single dollar of special interest funding, or without self-financing.
0: Let's focus on your statement that you haven't taken a single dollar of PAC money. In March, Colorado Politics reported that former New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg, a co-founder of Everytown for Gun Safety, made a million-dollar donation to a super PAC which supports you.
1: Is it disingenuous to say you're not getting PAC support even if it's indirect uh, no, it's not. We All I'm responsible for is the dollars I bring into our campaign. But even so, it's about accepting donations from individuals, from human beings with names. PACs are corporate entities where you don't know who gave the money or what they gave it for or what their special interest is. My commitment has always been we'll take monies from individuals. But no, the the outside entities that support us, they make those decisions. I don't do that. But I'm proud of the fact that Michael Bloomberg looked around the country and said, who, where is there an elected official who has the courage to actually take on the NRA and get big things done? And they said, that I was the one with the biggest track record of being able to do that. So honored to have his support. But what I'm responsible for is the money I raise into our campaign, and we've taken them only from individuals. I'm the only candidate to do that.
0: Besides the money from Bloomberg, there's another contribution. This one, two hundred fifty thousand dollars, that's come from Reed Hoffman, the California entrepreneur who founded LinkedIn. Uh, as we pointed out, neither man lives in Colorado. What influence might they have in your administration?
1: Oh, I think there's no uh, influence they'll have in my administration. I think what they're looking out for... You just said that you were happy to have Bloomberg supporting you. Mm -hmm. uh, So he'll have no influence? So what I think those people support is they're looking for leaders with track records of accomplishment, and they want to support those people that have the courage to take on hard fights and win. I think they don't find a lot of political courage when you look around the country. And I'm the only candidate in this race who's taken on the NRA twice and won twice. And when the NRA came to threaten me that my political career would be over if I had the courage to take those stands, I didn't say oh, I'm worried about that. I said, that's not my concern. My concern is not going to more funerals for 14-year-olds. So I think people are looking for, in this moment around the country, where are their leaders with political courage who will take real stands on things that matter? And I think that's in in an era when more and more leadership is going to be taken by governors because the federal government is less and less successful. You're going to look to governors to make changes on the environment, on women's health, on gun safety, on education. All of the major innovations in this moment are going to come from the state. So I think where folks used to look at, U.S. senators as a national investment. I think folks now are looking for governors to lead the country.
0: You are in a strong position financially, but polling shows that you're behind both Jared Polis and Kerry Kennedy, about 10 weeks left before the primary. Why, Why do you think you haven't connected?
1: Oh, I think we've connected profoundly. What that's a recognition of is name ID at this stage in the race. There are about 65% of the voters who've yet to make up their mind. That's where this entire race is decided. So a 10-point difference with 65% undecided uh, is a very small number for us. And as we, you and I were talking about earlier, the rest of the state is just now starting to pay attention to this race. I think when they start to look closely at who is the candidate that has the real track record of being able to take on incredibly difficult problems and build broad enough coalitions to actually succeed at them, whether it was passing the DREAM Act for undocumented kids or criminal justice reform or energy or health care. I've led successfully on all of those progressive issues in a big way, and I think there's no one else that will have that track record.
0: Thanks for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. Democrat Mike Johnston is running for governor, and that's the first of our interviews with the candidates ahead of the June 26th primaries, in which unaffiliated voters can participate for the first time. Tomorrow, we're scheduled to speak with Republican Victor Mitchell who, despite having served in the legislature, paints himself as an outsider in the race. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Journalists need a soul and a spine. The executive editor of The Washington Post said that last week after his newsroom won two Pulitzer Prizes. Marty Barron will be recognized this week by the Denver Press Club for a long legacy as an ethical journalist who holds the powerful to account. And we're talking to him now at a particularly difficult time for trust and the economics of this field. Marty, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. And first off, congratulations on the two Washington Post Pulitzer Prize wins for the investigation into Alabama U.S. Senate candidate Roy Moore and for your papers reporting on Russian interference in the 2016 presidential election. I'll say this isn't your first rodeo. You won a Pulitzer for leading the Boston Globe and its reporting on the Catholic sex abuse scandal. Uh, People who've seen the movie Spotlight might remember that. Right. Well, thank you. They're all appreciated. I want to know, has reporting these kinds of important stories become more difficult, more complicated in the political landscape, in the economic landscape for newspapers?
2: Well, I think there's no question that we lived in a more polarized society than we have in the past. Obviously, we've had disagreements. Uh, That's the nature of a democracy. Uh, But now we see greater polarization not only in public debate but also in the consumption of of information, consumption of news. Uh, So that certainly is having an effect on us in terms of the kind of uh, pressure we come under, perhaps the criticism that we receive, uh, the the sort of obstacles that people throw in our way uh, when we're trying to do our reporting.
0: Obstacles. Give me an example.
2: Oh, well, uh, legal threats, uh, uh, it would be one uh, th- from the administration. Obviously, the threat of uh, uh, leak investigations uh, with potential uh, serious penalties. Uh, there are um, uh, sort of uh, coordinated activities by, uh, with, with uh, media allies, for example, of the administration to uh, discredit – to try to discredit the reporting. Uh, things of that sort. There are a whole range of efforts out there.
0: I have in my mind the footage that you had on the Washington Post website of a reporter who uh, was essentially interviewing someone who was claiming to have dirt on Roy Moore there in Alabama, but who was, it turned out, a plant that was there to try to discredit the Washington Post. Do, Do you have your antenna up for that now more than ever?
2: Uh, I think we do, uh, for sure. Uh, in that instance, there was an effort by an organization called Project Veritas, which uh, essentially has its as its mission to try to discredit uh, mainstream media, uh, and they put forward a a woman who approached us and claimed to have borne uh, the child of uh, the Republican Senate candidate Roy Moore. Uh, and evidently wanted us to buy into that story. But we did a very thorough vetting uh, and uh, c- concluded fairly qu- – quite quickly actually that the story didn't hold up. Um, and then we did our own investigation into what this particular woman was, was up to. Uh, but these days we're, we're always aware that people are trying to engage in activities t- to uh, discredit our reporting uh, when our reporting actually is, uh, is truthful.
0: All right. I want to hearken back to your time at the Boston Globe and play a scene from Spotlight where Liev Schreiber, as you, is pressing your staff at the Globe to dig further into abuse allegations.
2: Well, apparently this priest molested kids in six different parishes over the last 30 years. And the attorney for the victims, Mr. Uh... Garabedian. Thanks, I Eileen. Mean, Mr. Garabedian says Cardinal Law found out about it 15 years ago and did nothing. Yeah, I think that attorney's a bit of a crank, and the church dismissed the claim. He
3: said she said.
2: Whether Mr. Garabedian is a crank or not, he says he has documents that prove the Cardinal knew. Uh, as I understand it, those documents are under seal. Okay, but the fact remains, a Boston priest abused 80 kids. We have a lawyer who says he can prove Law knew about it, and we've written all of uh, two stories in the last six months. That's... Strikes me as an essential story to a local paper. I think at the very least, uh, we have to go through those documents. How would you like to do that?
0: It's funny hearing him and then hearing you. You, really, he does a good. He does a good you, doesn't he, <laughs> <laughs> Marty Baron? It sounds like we have
2: the same voice.
0: <laughs> uh, you know that movie really celebrates the grueling work of journalism. Uh, And yet it is a a tough time for trust in the news. You have the president who has singled out the Washington Post where you are now on numerous occasions for being, quote, fake. And uh, he disparages you along with Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos who owns the post. Uh, How has that changed the work of an editor?
2: Uh, You know, we try not to be distracted or deterred by what the administration does, what the president does or says about us. Uh, I think that that is one of his objectives is to try to uh, intimidate us. Uh, He certainly is trying to uh, undermine confidence in our reporting, uh, but we know what our mission is, and our mission is 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 to try to find the truth to get at the truth uh, and that 's what we try to do every day. Uh, this organization has a long history, uh, and our reporting on so many important issues over over the course of history has been has been validated. And it's been validated quite regularly in the coverage of this administration as well. Uh, So many times, uh, the White House, including the president himself, has said the reporting uh, wasn't true. And then within a matter of days, it's proven to be true. Uh, One thing just by way of example recently is that we reported that the president had made the decision to to fire his national security advisor – uh, the president said that that wasn't true and then and then within a day or two, he fired his national security advisor. Uh, the same holds true for, for other news organizations. So the New York Times, for example, had said that he was uh, going to uh, – is looking to shake up his legal team, that he was looking to take on additional lawyers. Uh, he said that was fake news and then within a day or two, uh, he was making efforts to bring in uh, new, uh, new lawyers. Uh, so this has happened time and time again. Uh, And uh, our reporting has been validated uh, by subsequent events and very often by what the president himself says within a day or two.
0: What did you mean when you said the soul and the spine uh, of a journalist and, and how that's necessary today?
2: Sure. Well, I, the, the soul is, is what I was saying before, and that is this mission of getting at the truth. Uh, when we walk into our newsroom here at the Washington Post every day, uh, we're, we're faced with the principles of the Washington Post that were set down in the mid-1930s. And the first of those principles is to try to, is to uh, try to ascertain the truth as nearly as the truth may be ascertained. Uh, now, that recognizes that the truth can be elusive, uh, and so there's a process of striving there. Uh, but it also recognizes that there is such a thing as truth uh, and that it's not just a matter of your personal opinion. Uh, so the soul is is consistently trying to get at the truth. The spine is that there are a lot of people who try to prevent us from uh, achieving that objective, uh, including these days the, the administration. And uh, so – Uh, There are constant efforts to intimidate us, to distract us, to deter us. And uh, it's important that we have a uh, strong spine uh, and that we stick to our mission and uh, that we not be uh, sent off course. In that reporting, though, it's not uncommon for you to refer to
0: unnamed officials or sources who don't want to be identified. I imagine this is a question you get a lot from readers. but, But why does The Post do that kind of sourcing?
2: Well, because uh, very often that's the only way to get at the truth. Uh, You can imagine that if somebody were to uh, have his or her name uh, used, that person would be fired immediately Uh, and uh, the reality is that people who have access to information uh, within our government are not willing to lose their jobs uh, but they do want the truth to get out. And so they find us to be a a proper venue for doing that. And we recognize that people who come forward may have any number of agendas, Mm -hmm. and it's important for us to uh, determine what those agendas might be. Uh, We don't just talk to one person. You'll see that in many of our stories, we've talked to nine people. We've talked to 12 people. We've talked to 21 people. Uh, There was one instance where we were reporting on the president's national security advisor er, very early in the administration, General Flynn, uh, and we reported that he had spoken to Russians, uh, contradicting uh, what he had said before that he had said that he had not spoken to 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 uh, uh, the Russians uh, about relaxing sanctions um, and and, uh, the president gave a speech shortly thereafter in which he said that we had no sources for that, uh, for that, uh, that story. That we said that we had nine sources and he, the president said we had no sources. Uh, and then subsequent to that, the two things happened. First, immediately he called for a leak investigation. So if we had no sources and what we reported was not true, what exact leak was he calling f- for – why was he requesting an investigation? I mean there would have been hmm. no uh, true information then. And and subsequent to that, he then fired his national security advisor, General Flynn, on the very grounds that he had lied to the vice president about – when he told the vice president that he had had no conversations with the Russians, thereby validating the original story that we reported. Now, we obtained that information from anonymous sources, and the president said we had none, but in fact, we did have the nine sources that we said in the original story.
0: You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Morner, and my guest is Marty Barron, executive editor of The Washington Post. This Friday, he'll accept the Denver Press Club's highest honor. And uh, here in Colorado, uh, it could be argued that uh, an even more pressing issue is the financial health of journalism. Uh, When the editorial board of the Denver Post recently printed a scathing takedown of its corporate owner, uh, which has forced the firing of many journalists, you tweeted that it was extraordinary and courageous to speak up. Uh, Journalists are not typically supposed to be the news, uh, but does this feel different to you?
2: Uh, Well... Uh, unfortunately, they are the news because uh, you have a newsroom there which is about ninety to a hundred people and it 's being cut by cut by a third in a major growing metropolitan area like denver and uh, Quite honestly, having sixty people in a newsroom is just insufficient to cover a metro- metropolitan area of that of that size it 's just impossible and um, And that's a very difficult situation and I think that uh, uh, were that to occur and it appears that it is going to occur, uh, civic life in the Denver area is going to suffer as it would in any other major metropolitan area. Some people at the Post, the Denver Post uh, and in Colorado are calling
0: for a wealthy individual or group to step up and and try to buy it. Uh, And it makes me think of course of Jeff Bezos buying the Washington Post – How has that changed things? First of all, do you have many conversations with him? And I wonder if he ever
2: talks to you about revenue. Uh, We have uh, our senior management here has uh, uh, a conversation with Jeff once every two weeks. We talk about tactics and strategies, a uh, whole range of subjects in that in that realm. Uh, we never talk about our stories that we're working on. He's never assigned a story. He's never suppressed a story. He's never even critiqued a story. Uh, so we operate entirely with independence. Hmm. Typically in our conversations with him, we don't talk about revenue. Uh, we talk about how we might get more subscribers, how we might get more readers, uh, pricing structure, new technology, all of that. Uh, I cannot even think of a, um, a conversation that we've had where we've talked about overall, overall revenue. Uh, we might talk about revenue that we're getting from subscriptions or something like that as a way of measuring our success on that front and we've had a lot. But, um, uh, but we don't talk about the overall financial performance of the company. Are you a firm believer that people have to pay to read the news? Uh, I am a firm believer that it's, it's, it's necessary that if, if people don't pay for quality news, the very fact is they're not going to get quality news. It's simply impossible to sustain news organizations on advertising alone, especially in, in an environment where we have so much competition, particularly from major tech firms uh, like Google, like uh, Apple, uh, like Facebook – uh and so People are going to have to pay and I think they should pay. Traditionally, they have paid. I mean if you bought a newspaper in the old days and even in the current days, uh, you actually paid for that newspaper. Now, there were always people who were standing outside the box, the newspaper box, looking in and reading the headlines on the front page and they wouldn't (laughs) put a quarter in the box. Uh, But we have have many millions of people like that these days uh, and they expect to actually get the news for free and they just want to glance at a a couple of stories and uh, look at a few paragraphs. Uh, But the reality is that uh, if uh, news organizations like ours or like the Denver Post or other newspapers around the country are going to survive, uh, people are going to have to pay for that that coverage. Otherwise, there just won't be any coverage.
0: That is Pulitzer Prize winner Marty Barron, executive editor of The Washington Post. He plans to be in Colorado later this week to accept the highest award from the Denver Press Club. Chef Carlos Baca of Ignacio grew up foraging for traditional Native American ingredients in the San Juan Mountains. Later, he went on to learn classical European cooking and became the head chef at posh restaurants. Now he considers himself an indigenous food activist. He says the loss of traditional foods threatens the very lives of his people, given illnesses like diabetes. Baca joins us as part of our series, Five Stars to Food Trucks, about how food and place are connected in Colorado. And Carlos, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. What do you remember about foraging for ingredients as a kid? What were those days like?
4: Uh, I remember summers with my grandparents and uh, laying down blankets underneath pinon trees and climbing up there and shaking nuts out and going home and roasting them. I remember... My Grandma handing us uh, bags and sending us out to find purslane for dinner
0: Purslane, yeah, what is that
4: uh is a it's just a little common weed you find all over the place yeah okay. uh, uh, or uh bear root, which is is commonly known as osha
0: yeah bear root is something that I I uh, have not been exposed to until hearing about you and we actually caught up with you as you used it to prepare a dish. Begin
4: grinding your bear root to season the water. Uh, bear root is a very strong medicine and uh, the two things that people liken it to the most are almost a chili because of the spice it has. And also, it's like in maple syrup.
0: How can something be both like chili and maple syrup? Tell us about bear root. <laughs> uh, well, so in harvesting
4: those things, one um, sustainability and an indigenous uh, harvesting are, are hand in hand. And so you always wait till it begins to seed because when you take the root, you need to take the, the seed head and replant it. Right? This plant takes ten years to to really form. Oh my. And uh, depending on whether you're picking picking it on a waxing or a waning moon, the taste differential is going to be extreme—from
0: spicy perhaps to sweet. Yes, very much so. Bear root is a key ingredient in a recipe that you shared with us: blue corn mush with pine needle syrup. This mm-hmm. is a dish that I understand reminds you of your Denae and Ute grandparents.
4: Yeah, definitely. Um, I think of you know, blue corn um, and corn mush pretty much across the board for indigenous nations across this country. It's considered a first and a last food. What does that mean? Uh, that means that it's one of the first things a, a native child, a native baby will eat as a first food and it's going to be the last food that you eat on the way out. It's chewable. It is. It is. And, um, uh, reminds me of my grandmother to no end it's it's something that she fed me and it's something i remember being in the fridge at all times (laughs) and i remember uh, a lot of of that uh just being part of my childhood um whereas like with the bare root my grandfather uh, i remember him taking me to go get water from uh spring and which i still do (laughs) to this day um and coming across the the root plant and him explaining to me and showing me how to harvest it. So it's really just a, a merger of, of my grandparents' uh, traditions.
0: So you've left the formal culinary life behind, those posh restaurants. Uh, and in fact, I've heard that your friends have given you a new title. You are now the activist formerly known as chef. <laughs> That's right. Um, so <laughs> you, you've really changed how you relate to food and cooking. What, what do you think prompted that? I'm really understanding
4: what the western ideal of chef is which is being this uh, figurehead this power right and you are in control of everything and you can call whoever to bring you whatever you need I'm and picturing can... Gordon Ramsay when you say this right i mean this is your traditional model of of what it means to be a chef um where i'm the exact opposite of that in reality is that you know, the kitchen is out. My kitchen's outside. My pantry is outside. Um, I don't ever get to dictate what is going on because I don't know what's going to come out this year. I don't know if something, I mean, I just was in Albuquerque harvesting. Uh, I was looking for a specific plant. What was it? Uh, chimija, which is a, a like a mountain parsley Okay. in a way. Um, and last year it was prolific. This year I found only two plants, whereas I found last year choya buds were just starting to do, which is a, Choya's is a, a, the type there is called a walking cactus. Um, and you pick the bud off it. Last year it was barely starting. This year it was prolific. Um, so you never know, right? In other words, you're taking orders from a higher source. Yeah, you have to. Right? And that's why I can't say that I'm a chef because I can't dictate
0: how do you think that view might transform the health of indigenous communities, you know, which struggle with obesity and diabetes?
4: Yeah, you know, I mean, it, it, while it is at a higher rate on reservations, it is across the board mm. in this country. And um, and in partially because of chefs and uh the disconnect with food in our system and you know like when i say food is medicine and and memory and all of these things it's, it's a reality you know and we've displaced ourselves from the entire system of food and within the indigenous foods sovereignty movement that's what we're moving towards for our communities is really plugging that in
0: what is that movement help me understand what it means to have an indigenous foods sovereignty movement well uh
4: you have to get into the historical context of the warfare against indigenous food systems, which starts with boats landing on either end of this continent and down south. And, you know, uh, the crops were burned, things were illegal. Chocolate was illegal. Amaranth was illegal at one point. Um, Uh, chopping down all our orchards, killing all the bison, displacement, which takes you out of your food system and
0: drops you in Oklahoma, right? So these things... Right, when you are uh, a people that moves about the country and then you are forced onto one parcel of land, that has to change what you eat.
4: Well, I mean, most most tribes were pretty stationary in that they were in a specific region, right? So if you take somebody from the eastern woodlands of... Uh, the New England region, and drop them in Oklahoma. What does their food system become, right? Um, and so basically what we're trying to do is re uh, reorganize and reinstill our traditional, not only foraging, but agricultural methods and, and become fully sustainable in and of ourselves. What does that look like in the Four Corners? Oh, in the Four Corners, a lot of awesome projects going on, really. We have, uh, say, like Taos Pueblo, they have uh, Red Willow Farm, which is... You know, they do farmers markets and they grow food for the community, and it's also a learning center. Um, You have places like the Deep School, which is in the Chuska Mountains in Navajo, New Mexico, um, where the kids are learning from. Uh, in the indigenous perspective with Western perspectives outside of that circle, um, where they're growing their own foods and they have their, planted their own orchard and they're learning wild foods. Um, you know, I mean, so they're learning from that through language programs also mixed in with that and the agriculture. So, it's, you know, there's a lot of things going
0: on here. It's amazing. You talk about food also as medicine. I wonder if in in the waning seconds we have, if you might just expound on how that Influences a meal you serve yourself. Uh, yeah, you know,
4: I mean, it's like just
0: just reiterating something
4: we've been talking about with blue corn and bear root, right? I mean, you have this medicine infused with the sustenance, and therefore, um, you know, it, it was traditionally that ideal is a, a winter food. Uh, so, if you're going hunting in the winter, you would have a nice little dried cake mixed with fat and berries, and this, right? So, you have all that medicine with you.
0: And it's a transportation, so and seasonally appropriate, which is a real theme for you. Carlos, thanks for being with us. He's Carlos Baca, Indigenous food activist, and he'll speak at a food justice symposium this weekend in Dolores. Baca is from Ignacio, Colorado. House hunters in Denver are seeing record low inventory, and what's available is expensive or needs a lot of work. We asked listeners about their own home buying experiences. CPR business reporter Ben Marcus found frustration and
5: some interesting trends. Here's something you can't find in Denver for $200,000. Half an acre of land. As the door opens to Heather Rubenacker's backyard, this reporter couldn't help but react in amazement.
3: One of the big selling points for the house was the yard. Um, having a corner lot, we have a huge piece of of land. Um, we've got two side yards on top of this, and everything in the front. But having a dog, having a kid, like there's nothing that can replace this amount of space.
5: Truth be told, Rubenacker was not picky about a home. When she was looking, there was simply nothing to buy in her price range in Denver that wasn't a disaster or far too small for her growing family. And they were losing the few properties that were on the market to bidding wars. So they expanded their search, due east, down I-70 on the eastern plains to a tiny town called Bennett.
3: Everybody's like, Bennett? Where's Bennett? Um... I had given up, actually. I was eight and a half, nine months pregnant. We had been outbid on so many other properties, and I was just done.
5: That's when they decided to drive away from Denver until they found a home they could afford. Extreme commuting has been a fact of life in expensive places like the California Bay Area or New York for years, but this is a growing phenomenon in Denver. And Real estate agents, for instance, in Colorado Springs, say that Denverites are moving there and commuting up to the metro. Ruben husband works downtown. That's 35 miles away.
3: Uh, when we were driving, I, I think I said the words in the car like, are you sure you want to make this drive every day? Um, but honestly, once we got out here and we sat in this house, it just felt like home.
5: It's just under 2,000 square feet, and there was little to no work to be done on the house. Ruben comfortable here and clearly proud of the home. Still, there's certainly a culture shock moving to a Plains town of about 2,000 people.
3: We just find that, you know, while it's nice to live out here, there's not a lot to do. So, you know, we generally find ourselves back in Denver.
5: Rubenacker Acker won't be alone in making the drive from Bennett. One developer has moved in with plans for more than 260 single-family homes. The brochure says the development off I-70 is, quote, uniquely positioned to capture the next wave of growth east of Denver. Many, though, aren't willing to make that drive. On the other side of the front range, on the CU Boulder campus, Tyler Peterson is busy wrapping up his master's in accounting. Peterson was born and raised in Colorado, and he loves the outdoors and being around his family. But he's still leaving his home state after graduation. Thinking long-term, financially, it makes the most sense to leave. Um, If I want to buy a house, which I plan to do in a couple years... That just wouldn't be possible here. You know, I've got student loans. Student loans are a major impediment to affordability. Surveys from the National Association of Realtors shows there's a strong desire among younger generations to buy a home, but the combination of skyrocketing home prices and student loan debt can make it frustratingly difficult. Peterson's solution? Apply for jobs in Duluth, Minnesota. They were pretty surprised that this guy from Colorado would apply to Duluth they
1: thought I was applying to like Duluth Colorado or something like that but um no I just I had a huge enthusiasm for wanting to be there and they appreciated that
5: there's a different kind of sticker shock with a move to Minnesota like winter temperatures that are routinely 20 or 30 degrees colder than the front range but Peterson has family there and he's well aware of the tough winters he'd still love to stay in Colorado but he can see that the housing market has become unworkable
1: it has. You combine like
5: lack of space with everybody moving here, and it's kind of just this toxic mixture. 220,000 people moved to Colorado last year, but 193,000 people, people like Tyler Peterson, left Colorado. I'm Ben Marcus, CPR News.
0: And it's time for us to leave you. Thanks for being with us on Colorado Matters from CPR News.